well, word got out that I was uh, preaching for the first time in six weeks, and half the church skipped town, <clears throat> including Scott and my wife. So, sorry if you didn't get the memo. We are going to soldier on and pick back up on our series in Ephesians, starting in chapter 2. And I want to read, uh, I think, the first ten verses, and we're going to focus on the first three but they are a little bit of a kick in the gut, and so I want us to have the full picture of what Paul is doing, because I really want to give them the attention they deserve without trying to just constantly remind you that this is not the whole story, that this is just part of the story. But let's look at kind of the context for them. Um, This does not, Aaron, I don't know if somebody can help me out, but my remote does not seem to be working. There we go. All right, Ephesians 2. Verse 1, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind." But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus." For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Anybody uh, enjoy horror movies? It's okay, you can admit it if you're a horror movie fan. Um, I see a few people doing sort of this, most people saying no. So I'm somebody that at a certain point in my life uh, really enjoyed watching scary movies and something happened in my like late 20s, early 30s. I don't know if it was having kids, I don't know if it was just uh, getting old, but I ceased to have any tolerance for sitting and watching horror movies at all. So two years ago, when the movie Get Out came out. Um, I hadn't seen a horror film in many, many years, uh, but I got really intrigued by what uh, I read about the movie and what Jordan Peele, uh, who wrote and directed it, was trying to do with the movie. And so I went and saw it, and it really pushed up against the limits of what I can see. Let me, let me, I'm going to talk about movies for a second, so let me just make my standard disclaimer. Just because I see something doesn't mean you should see something. It doesn't, definitely doesn't mean that you should see it if you're under 18. Um, I'm, I try to be pretty discerning about what I see, and you should too. There's my disclaimer. Um, anyway... That uh, that came out, and then last year, A Quiet Place, which is kind of a pseudo-horror movie, came out. It's PG-13, which made me feel like, okay, uh, I can probably tolerate this, and I loved it. I thought it was fantastic. One of my favorite things of last year was taking uh, my then 15-year-old son and watching him be scared to death by that movie after I already knew what was happening so that I wasn't scared to death. And then we repeated that exercise uh, a couple of weeks ago. I let him watch The Sixth Sense, 
Um, and the joy in watching him react when the whole thing, you know, the, the big reveal at the end. I won't give it away, even though I shouldn't have to do spoilers for movies that came out 20 years ago. Um, but if you haven't seen it, you don't want me to give it away. But watching him react to that w- was um, all worth it. There's a new uh, horror film out called Us, which I have not seen, that Jordan Peele also did. I know a couple of people in the room went and saw it last night. I'm not going to out them, but if you hear anybody like quietly crying during the service, that might be them. I sent them this tweet that I saw uh, before they went and saw it uh, from someone who said, I'm going to see us tonight, but I'm also anointing myself with oil and taking my Bible, prayer book, Luther's Catechism, Rosary, and Book of Common Prayer with me because the devil going to catch these hands before I catch a demon. <clears throat> I'm not suggesting that you dive into horror films, but I say all that because I think there's something that Paul's doing here in the first three verses of chapter two, that there are people making horror movies who are actually trying to do something similar. Believe it or not, there is a whole uh, little group of filmmakers in Hollywood making mainstream horror films who are Christians, who have chosen the horror film genre on purpose because they believe it's one of the few spaces left where they can say really, really true things spiritually in just really overt ways. And they feel like they're saying something that's really important. Uh, I actually came across an article on Vice uh, that was complaining about how many horror movies are mouthpieces for Christianity. You may not believe that that's a real thing that's happening, but it's happening so much that people are complaining, non-Christians are complaining, about how Christian the horror film industry has become. So I, but, but one of those directors is a guy named Scott Derrickson. He, did, uh, he directed Doctor Strange, which even if you don't see horror films, you may have seen, but he's mostly worked in the horror genre. And this is what he says about why. He says, there are a lot of voices that are broadcasting that the world is explainable. Corporate America limits the world to consumerism. Science can limit it to the material world. Even religion limits it to a lot of theories that can explain everything. I think we need cinema to break that apart and remind us that we're not in control and we don't understand as much as we think we do. And that's what those films are often doing. They're trying to take the sense of control away from you as much as possible so that you're sitting there knowing that you can't control. Not only can you not control what's going to happen next, but you don't understand, you don't know what's going to happen next and when you're going to you know, be forced to jump out of your seat or hide under the seat in front of you. That's part of what's happening there. And I actually think Paul is doing something similar here in Ephesians 2. And what he's doing and what he has said here may be more important now than it was at the time that he was actually doing it, that this was actually written or preached. Scott talked a little bit about Ephesians when he first started, about some people believe Paul may or may not have written the book. And one of the reasons that uh, people question whether Paul wrote it is because there's some different sort of form and function to the way that it happens. A lot of people believe that's because this was actually a sermon that Paul preached. Scott talked about there's kind of a universal nature to Ephesians that's unique in a lot of his letters, And rather than thinking Paul didn't write it, there's a good chance that it was a transcription of a sermon that Paul was preaching around in different places, and that's why it looks a little bit different. Um, But at the time that he preached this or it was written down, uh, he lived in a world 
where it wasn't as hard to convince people of the reality of, of real evil. Um, we're living in a time when we work very, very hard to make the world organized and explainable, which leaves very little room for a reality like evil, like personified supernatural evil that's outside of our control, that's outside of our complete understanding, uh, the kind of evil and darkness that Paul, frankly, describes in these first three verses of Ephesians 2, which we're going to read again in just a minute. His description doesn't fit our sort of clean, neat, scientific understandings of reality very well. And it doesn't portray Jesus as just saving us from something after we die. Okay, That's one thing that you'll see when we look at these three verses. When Paul describes what we've been saved from, it's not just saved from something that will happen after we die. And it definitely doesn't portray Jesus as just saving us or just making some minor improvements in our lives. There's a drama, a real drama to what Paul, the language Paul uses to articulate who we were, what we've been saved from. Frederick Buechner says that the gospel is tragedy before it's comedy or fairy tale. And there's a bit of that here. Paul is talking about the tragedy that was reality, that, that necessitated the gospel, that gives the gospel a lot of its power. So let's look at, at the language of those first three verses again. Paul says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. There is no scientific slot for that phrase. Our modern rational ways of understanding the world can't fully compute with a phrase like following the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all, there's, a, there's something Paul's going to do that we'll talk about later where he's talking in unique ways to Jews who were already sort of on the inside of God's people, but who still needed Jesus to come, and to Gentiles who were always on the outside of God's people. But here, this is an inclusive statement. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. It's kind of horror film language in some ways what Paul does here. So it's interesting that this is here, because if you were here for the five weeks that, that Scott preached through Ephesians 1, it's kind of beautiful. It's, Paul goes to great lengths to describe to us the blessings, um, giving us really big vision, eyes for all the ways that we've been blessed in Christ. And after this, there's some really amazing, powerful, beautiful stuff coming as well. He's going to describe the supernatural impact of, of what Jesus has done for us individually and the supernatural impact of what Jesus has done for people collectively, the way that collective groups of people can break free from the darkness, from the chains of the systems of evil and oppression in the world. Both of those things are about to happen in this chapter of Ephesians. But in between that... He inserts um, this really dramatic language about who we were and about a darker realm outside of the kingdom of God. And he does that because he knows that we have to be very clear on the difference between 
our lives in Christ, which is something we got a lot of in Ephesians 1. If you go back and read that chapter, that phrase, in Christ, appears over and over. Scott emphasized it one particular week. But he knows, Paul knows we need to understand the difference between our life in Christ and our lives apart from Jesus. And kind of looking more broadly, the difference between the reality of God's kingdom under the reign of Jesus and the kingdoms of the world disconnected from the power and the rule of Jesus. It's important, Paul knows, to know the difference in those things. So he offers us this very clear and sort of haunted description of the reality that Jesus has saved us from when God saw us, any of us who have been saved, any of us who Jesus has changed, who follow Jesus, this is our reality. God saw us in this reality that Paul is describing and saved us, rescued us from it, and moved us into his kingdom of light out of a kingdom of darkness. And the question, as we go through this a little bit, that I want all of us to consider is, what is my reality apart from life in Christ? And it's kind of heavy. Um, and it's, it is, for some of us, a sort of backward-reaching question, but it also there, I think, is a very important present tense nature to this question, which I'll talk about in just a minute. I want to read the voice translation of this because I think it adds a little uh, power to part of what we're going to talk about. It says, it, it, it renders these verses this way, As for you, don't you remember how you used to just exist? Corpses, dead in life, buried by transgressions, wandering the course of this perverse world. You were the offspring of the prince of the power of air. Oh, how he owned you, just as he still controls those living in disobedience. I'm not talking about the outsiders alone. This is the Jew-Gentile thing. I'm not talking about Gentiles alone. We were all guilty of falling headlong for the persuasive passions of this world. We all have had our fill of indulging the flesh and mind, obeying impulses to follow perverse thoughts motivated by dark powers. As a result, our natural inclinations led us to be children of wrath, just like the rest of humankind. What Paul is describing here, our state before Jesus rescued us, is not just a passive lostness. It is not just things weren't great. It is not just whatever you were pursuing spiritually was not really that fulfilling to you. It's something much more uh, defined and clear and powerful that Paul says about our life prior to the intervention of God through Jesus Christ. He describes not only brokenness in our lives, but he describes us existing in a very dark space with its own king, or as he says, prince. We were existing in a space where there's an actual ruler who's pushing an agenda, and it's not Jesus, is what Paul says. And we've kind of run from this. So I want to spend just a couple of minutes talking about how we react to this kind of language as Christians, as the church. Because I think I have, and I think we have collectively, um, as, a, as a sort of Christian culture, and I think it's true of our particular community, that we've kind of run from this. We're kind of unsure with what to do with language like this that talks about the ways that evil sort of had a hold on us and that talks about Satan, that talks about the devil 
in particular. It feels a little bit uncomfortable for us. Several years ago, uh, Barna, which is a Christian research group, I've, I've quoted from them before, did a survey, and uh, they put the statement before Christians, they put this statement, the devil is not a living being, but is a symbol of evil. Um, 40%, 40% of Christians strongly agreed with that statement, that the devil is not a living being, but is just a symbol of evil. 20% more somewhat agreed with it. 8% more weren't sure. So if you're doing the math really quickly in your head, that leaves 32% of Christians who agree somewhat or strongly that the devil is a real force of evil in the world. And I don't say that to condemn anybody because this is, I think, a natural space in our faith that we're going to wrestle through with what's real, what's not real, what's true and not true. But it tells us that the the majority of Christians don't believe that there is a personified, active adversary, enemy, or they're not really sure. And the scriptures speak to this pretty clearly. Um, But that makes sense, because as we talked about already, we're living in a time where we rely on what we can see, what we can prove, what we can know scientifically. And this idea of a devil doesn't fit well in that. And honestly, it's sort of awkward and embarrassing for us. I think for me... This is a part of my faith that somewhere along the way became awkward. It became embarrassing to talk about in front of other people. More than Jesus, I, I feel uncomfortable talking about the devil in front of other people. Um, I mean, really, what's the space between telling people, I believe in the devil and I believe in Bigfoot? I think about that. I'm, it's a silly comparison, sort of, but think about what you personally feel if it comes to acknowledging that I think these are real things. I don't think the difference is, is all that great. People who study these things um, note that they describe what I'm, what I'm describing as we kind of live in a time where we want everything to be rational and explainable. They say we live in a time that is disenchanted. We are disenchanted. And they don't mean that figuratively, they mean it literally. Uh, For most of history, and prior to this sort of scientific age that we live in, uh, people lived in a world that was enchanted, meaning they were very in touch with realities beyond what could be seen and controlled and explored. The, The idea of spirits was not foreign to them. It was not awkward or uncomfortable. You were not thought to be naive or silly or uneducated if you believed in these sort of things that required a sense of enchantment. And now, that's not true. We are all sort of, in some ways, um, in our time, disenchanted. When Paul was writing, he was writing to an enchanted time. The idea of God, or in most cases, many gods, the idea of evil and darkness and evil spirits, that wasn't something he had to persuade people might be true or might be real. It's different for us now. And that's when I said this might be more important for us in some ways than it was then. That's what I mean. And, and I just want to say that science and all of our modern ways of knowing are not bad. They've given us many gifts. There are things we understand that we didn't understand a 100 or a 1,000 years ago. But we have to come to a crossroads as a people where we either understand science within our belief of God, or we crown science and rational knowledge God. 
we say scientific understanding and what we can, we can prove and understand is God, and we're going to move on that way. Or we admit that, that they have a space and they have a purpose, but they're not God, and we know that there's more to reality than what can be explained and controlled. This is kind of what, what we have before I think we can fully take in what Paul's saying here. We have to come to grips with that. Have I decided that this way of knowing and understanding the world is the way, or do I believe that there is more than what our modern understandings and approaches to rational knowledge can give us? The scriptures are clear on this. I could spend a whole sermon series talking about this, but let me just give you some highlights. At some point, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. He's actually talking to Peter, but talking beyond Peter in that moment. Um, James tells us to resist the devil and that he'll flee from you. Uh, Peter says, watch out, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And then Paul, later in Ephesians, is going to tell us to take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. In fact, one of the most popular and powerful passages from Ephesians that we'll come to months from now is in Ephesians 6, where Paul says, Finally, be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, there's a lot to be done with all of that. In fact, I now want to preach a whole series on devil, the devil and, and uh, evil. So that'll have to come after Ephesians. Certainly bad ways to embrace this understanding. And there have been abuses of this in the church, lots of them. But it shouldn't cause us to flee from what the scriptures tell us, which is there is a real darkness apart from Jesus. And there is a real prince, a real controller of that darkness. In verses 1 through 3, here, come into our disenchanted space, this space where we're disinclined to believe all of that stuff, and sort of shout at us, you really needed Jesus because you were not in control of your life or of the world you lived in without him. And no amount of knowledge or work could have gotten you the control or the peace or the life that you needed. That's what Paul's saying. You have to have some, some real belief and understanding that there was a real darkness, that there was uh, a real space that you were living in separate from the kingdom of God to understand the impact and the importance of Jesus. He's telling us that we live in a world that really is enchanted, that if we forget that, if we forget that there's more going on than what we can see and what we control, we forget why Jesus is so necessary and what Jesus has done for us. So, between this beautiful description in chapter 1 of our blessings in Christ and the coming power and implications of our salvation in chapter 2 and 3, Paul gives us this very sobering truth about life apart from Christ. I want to point out, uh, before I'm done, two opportunities for us in light, though, though what he says here is heavy, I want to point out two opportunities for us, I think, in light of this kind of understanding. The first opportunity is when we understand what we have been pulled out of, what we have been saved from, we have the opportunity to stay humble and to stay grateful. 
my experience, I just want to speak kind of down at our level, out of my experience as a pastor of this community. My experience is that over the years, in an ongoing way, many of us struggle with our faith, and, and somewhere in a significant way in the midst of that struggle, a lot of us are having a hard time because I think we have lost a sense of the difference in our life with Jesus and our life without him. I'm not sure, I'm not sure that we are, let me, let me uh, back off the lightness of that statement. I am sure that we are often disconnected from the significance of the difference in our life without Jesus and our life with Jesus. That's not true for all of us, but it's true for, I think, a lot of us, at least at certain seasons. Now, there's lots of reasons, there are lots of reasons why that might be true. Um, you may have, you may be like me, uh, I became a believer when I was six. And so, my whatever I was repenting of at six involved crayons and Legos and things like that. So, when I read Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, uh, and I think about my life before Jesus at 6, <laughs> it's kind of weird. Um, yes, I'm sure I was being selfish with my Legos. And that matters. Theologically, that matters. Uh, so maybe that, that's why you struggle to kind of uh, come to grips with the difference, the importance of the difference in your life without Jesus and with Jesus. Lots of other reasons, sort of living with relative socioeconomic comfort. A lot of us are, um, have gone through higher education that makes us more rational and less likely to believe in the realities of the spiritual kingdoms of the world and the kingdom of God. But we're looking at faith in God. What that produces for us is this view of faith in God as not a whole lot more than just an improvement, either on our afterlife prospects or on our life here. But, but it's kind of a, ultimately kind of a small improvement if we don't understand the difference in the two kingdoms, uh, that, that the truth that Paul insists on here. Because he says, whatever our background is, however we came to faith, that without Jesus, we are corpses, dead in life, buried by transgressions. We are following the course of this world. We are following the prince of the power of the air. We are falling headlong for the persuasive passions of this world. Now, not everyone is out of touch with the reality uh, of, of and, and the power of life in this world apart from Jesus with the true power of evil. I think this is sort of a, uh, the fact that, that we live separated from that is often kind of a sign of a certain amount of comfort and privilege. I've been in communities, if you go to prison and, and, and start talking to people in prison, there's a lot less doubt about the reality of evil in the world. Uh, several years ago, one of my cousins lived with us while she was getting sober, and Amy and I, she also couldn't drive at that time, and so Amy and I went to a lot of AA meetings um, and rehab meetings, and it was sort of staggering to me how, with how much more ease the reality of evil was talked about in that space as opposed to our space in the church. And it happens the other way, too. I mean, uh, folks who have chased money to the top and found themselves empty. Why are rich and fam famous people 
not immune to the tragedies of depression and suicide. And there are complicated answers to that, but, but at the end of the day, they've discovered that there's still a realm of darkness and evil that we're all grappling with, no matter our circumstances. And the course that the world takes you on, even if you get the best version of that course, often takes you deeper into the realm, those realms of darkness rather than protecting you from them. And, and we don't have to look very far, even if we live kind of separated from the realities of evil. Just look around. History tells us of awful, awful things that people have done to each other, but the news does too. We have not shaken free from that darkness and that evil that exists inside of people. And Paul is reminding us of the reality that we've been rescued from all of that. And that ought to make us both humble because he says this is our common heritage. We were all guilty of falling headlong for the persuasive passions of the world. It's true for all of us. So there's a humility that comes from that. And, and the fact that we have not pulled ourselves from one kingdom to the other. So we ought to be humbled by this reality that he's giving us here. And we also ought to be grateful that we've received such a rescue. And we'll, we'll get into that more in the next couple of weeks as we look at what that rescue looks like. Second opportunity that I think we have here uh, that these verses give us is the opportunity and really sort of the sobering call to stay awake. Um, let, me, let me say, before I talk about this, let me say first that I 100% affirm the biblical truth that when you are saved by Jesus, nothing can take you out of his hand. There's nothing that can separate you from his love. In fact, um, not only are the rest of the scriptures clear about that, but, but I think Paul's most obvious intent here in verses 1 through 3 is to remind us where, we've, where we came from and where we've been carried instead, that something real, some real change, some real supernatural change has happened for us. And I think that's his, his most obvious purpose here in verses 1 through 3. But we still live in the world. We still live in the midst of this stream of the kingdom of the world where our only steadiness is being in Christ. And not just mechanically being in Christ, not just saying, well, yeah, there was a time that I accepted Jesus, and so I know I'm saved and nothing can separate me from that, but living in Christ. That's our only steadiness in the stream of the world around us that Paul is describing here. And if we forget how crucial that is, we can be lured away, not, I don't believe, out of Christ in any sort of eternal or spiritual way, but in our functional day-to-day living, we can be lured away from the active blessing and protection of living in Christ by trading it for the illusion of the blessings that the kingdom of this world offers. Paul's explicit about this. In 1 Timothy 6, he says, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. This is not just for people who have not met Jesus, because in the very next sentence he says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money and what it can buy have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And it may seem odd to start talking about uh, the devil and the that, that realm and the way of life that's controlled by this evil enemy, and then suddenly throw in people 
here who are wandering from life in Christ, eager for money and what it can buy. But I think here in 1 Timothy, Paul is describing people who were rescued by Jesus and who forgot what he rescued them from, and so they went back to it. Because he rescued them from the way of the world that takes you this direction, but eager for what the world could offer, they reach back to it. Not living in Christ, but, but being convinced, well, I'm saved now, and this stuff still looks pretty good. Remember that though there is sort of some horror film language in verses 1 through 3, the, the, the real meat of what Paul describes when he talks about life apart from Christ is not really, really horror film stuff. We kind of may need that the, the, to shock us back into thinking about the reality of evil. But they didn't need to be convinced of that back then. And so Paul is describing the realm of the enemy like this. It's a realm where we're following the course of this world, not necessarily where we're becoming serial killers. It's a realm where we're falling headlong for the persuasive passions of this world. He connects those two things to the idea of following the prince of the power of the air. We would like to make it sort of a horror film thing and say, this warning is to not go all the way back to the very worst stuff. And Paul is connecting it just to that tendency to follow the course of the world. The point here is, like I said, that we have to stay humble and stay grateful for what Jesus has done in us, what he has saved us from. And we have to stay awake. We have to stay alert to the reality of these two kingdoms, the reality of a real enemy who wants to convince us that now that we've been saved, we are, our sort of important spiritual business is done and we can just follow the course of the world again. Because listen, the enemy is real. The scripture is clear about that. And he's not just trying to tempt you to do bad things. This is where you need to be awake. The devil is not just trying to tempt you to do some bad things here and there. He's trying to steal the riches of God's life and Christ from you by offering you the kingdoms of this world in a trade, telling you that they will satisfy you. He is still, he still has that agenda for you, even if you're in Christ. He's trying to destroy your faith that when you lost your life at the cross, that you really found real life in Christ. He's trying to make you question that when you died with Jesus, that you really found real life. And Paul, of all people, knows that the good news of gospel, like I said, is tragedy first because it is a call to come and lose our lives. To not just, listen, the call of the gospel is not just to believe in the cross, but to take up our cross and to live the way of the cross. And so Paul is reminding us here, and he'll do it emphatically in verse 4 and beyond next week, that we give away our lives at the cross of Jesus because what he gives us back is real freedom from that illusion that we can find life anywhere else. What he gives us back is a peace and a life and a hope 
that we cannot ever create for ourselves if we are not living in Christ. Let's pray.